You are listening to Inspirational Decency, episode 878, Naked Shrug. People often ask me, Jojo, what is the key to being a great salesman? A worthy question. After calmly explaining to them that I don't enjoy being looked in the eye or being addressed by any name other than Big Cheddar, I give them the answer. Attitude. What kind of attitude, you're asking? Maybe you're thinking confident, brash, fearless, diligent, patient, friendly. Nope. None of the above. You see, in order to be a truly great salesman, more than anything else, you've got to be angry. That's what they don't tell you at any of these seminars or conferences. Dale Carnegie himself didn't even know how to put that into his books. In order to really persuade someone that they will wither and die without whatever it is you're hawking, you've really got to be angry, to scream at them until they realize that the mop heads they've been using are not as absorbent as they could be. You've got to threaten people with physical violence, maybe even throw them into Lake Erie, and maybe then they'll realize that they need a weekly subscription to the Wyoming Cowpunch Herald. I would recommend placing both yourself and your customer on what I like to call the same rage page. Get your mark to cry along with you as you release volumes of pent-up frustration and resentment, and your target will buy whatever sets of water-damaged Canadian encyclopedias you've got cluttering the back of your 1977 Ford hatchback. But, you may be asking, is there a point at which using rage as a selling tool is inappropriate? Is there a point at which one can go too far with one's capitalistic apoplexy? A good question, the answer to which is no. You see... If someone passes on a vinyl cat holder or a set of bathroom knives simply due to a torrent of hateful and humiliating insults screamed at top volume, they were never really yours to begin with. Let them go and seek out others whose self-esteem is as frayed and threadbare as the business model for a drug front call center. Remember, if you ain't yelling, you ain't selling. And if you're frying, you ain't lying. I don't quite know what that last phrase means. I suppose it means that if you are frying something especially greasy, it will drown out the sound of whatever lies you're telling. Couldn't hurt to try, could it? So, when pitching a potential customer, remember the nine R's. Rage. Rudeness. Reprehensibility. Ribs. Poke them there, right in the ribs. Red-faced. Rack and pinion steering. Rack and onion steering. Rick Springfield. And Rick Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld's sleazy hitman brother, who knows how to keep his mouth shut and his duffel bag open. Thank you for your time, and happy spewing. Hi, I'm Christopher Plummer. What you're about to hear is an audio snippet 
from my upcoming one-man play, Twain, the man you thought you knew, but didn't, but kind of did, but there were some things that maybe you didn't know about. There have been many interpretations of Twain over the years on stage. Perhaps one of the more memorable is Hal Holbrook and his long tenure portraying Twain in a one-man play on Broadway. What you may not know, however, is that all prior portrayals of Twain are complete lies. I am talking about Mark Twain, by the way, not Jeff Twain, the country singer who has brought us such classics as Lipstick on a Steer. And if you ain't gone, I'm gonna cry. No, of course I talk about Mark Twain, the author of such works as Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer, etc., etc. What you're about to hear in this snippet from my current portrayal of Twain is going to blow the door off the I Heart Mark Twain museum that you built in your garage. Revelations in this play are numerous, and they bring us certainly much closer to the heart of the man himself. I hope you enjoy. Oh, hi there. I didn't see you come in. My name is Mark Twain, and I am an author, but foremost and first of all-ish, I'm a mixed martial artist. If you would like a karate chop to the neck and throat, might I advise you to try to steal my lemon tarts. I am fiercely protective and very hungry, so watch your step. Anyway, I'm sorry I had to lash out at you like that. I've had a very hard life. Life isn't all peaches and roses if you are a celebrated author, you know. Things don't suddenly start getting easier in the romance department. I'm still real frustrated about girls. In any case, I was born in 1728, a hundred years before the invention of frosting. And I was born not in Mississippi, like some weirdos think. Mississippi stinks. No, I was born in the Yukon to a seal-clubbing, man-shoeing woman named Bessie. She was eight feet tall and as muscular as a tree trunk. If a tree trunk uh, had muscles. Tree trunks are strong, I guess is what I'm trying to convey. Sorry, I'm not very good with words. In any case, she gave birth to me atop a pile of excited villagers who swayed and screamed to the heavens that a child fit for ritual sacrifice had finally been born unto them. But Bessie had other plans. She distracted the villagers by throwing a large businessman into the air. They were worried about getting crushed, so they shielded their faces, which allowed Bessie to gain her freedom, bringing me along to raise me with 
a pack of wolves that she managed to overpower and then pay handsomely for their trouble. I was taught by these wolves and my mother to fish, to knit, to occasionally crochet, but mainly to play croconole at a professional level. It was this skill that eventually paid my way through college at Dawson City Technical Institute for the Mentally There. At the Dawson City Institute for the Mentally There, I met my future wife, Megski. Megski was six feet tall. I don't know why I keep focusing on height. It's the first thing that comes to mind because I am four foot two. And she was as beautiful as the Yukon Valley, which is actually not as beautiful as people think, but it's certainly not unpleasant. So I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Anyway, we married after two weeks. And after graduating with degrees in elegant hatred, we fled to the United States. And Megski earned a living driving a taxi into wealthy businessmen. She would not always collect a settlement from them, but usually didn't hurt, put it that way. And yes, we were happy for a time, she and I. And yet, I kept looking to the south. What wonders held for me there? Would there be wildebeests? Would there be wizards sunning themselves on front porches and drinking lemonade that they had fashioned from stale bourbon? and saying things like, I do declare, you are a toad. And then they turn people into toads. I can only have imagined and did imagine. I'm sorry I have a severe lack of sleep right now. I've been up since 6 a.m. trying to reattach my leg. Falls off periodically, but I'll, I'll get to that eventually. In any case, Megski was not as a neighbored and fascinated by the mystical South as I was. And so, with a heavy, heavy heart, I divorced her, receiving in the settlement only a small manservant made entirely of cheese. And I took off, following the Mississippi, from St. Paul all the way down to its state namesake. Oh, the encounters I had along the way. I met an elderly blackjack player who kept shouting the phrase, I don't have any more cake. Uh, I can only imagine what he meant. Well, I suppose it meant that he didn't have any more cake. And I, I did keep asking him for cake. So I suppose that mystery is solved. Put that one to rest. Who else did I meet? Well, I met a pioneer woman 
named Audacity Sue, who made a living on the festival circuit by beating people to death with large hams. It was sort of like a trick shooter might do, displaying his or her prowess with a 12-gauge or a Dillinger. Except her demonstrations basically involved taking a volunteer from the audience and beating them to death with a large ham. Keep in mind that these were more barbaric times, and people were more easily impressed by violence. Who else did I meet? Well, I met perhaps the greatest figure in my life, the man who would have the most influence over my eventual course. And that, of course, was NBA legend Daryl Dawkins, who showed me how to dunk, but most importantly, how to love. Eventually, after a arduous four-week trip, I arrived in Tupelo to shape my destiny. And there ends the first snippet from my one-man play about Mark Twain. This is Christopher Plummer. Stay tuned for part two. One-man play about Mark Twain. And so there I was, in Mississippi. What to do? Where to go? Who to see? Well, eventually, I earned a job as a rodeo clown in a children's hospital. I suppose it wasn't a job so much as it was a hobby. I would pretend to be a rodeo clown, being chased by bulls, and sick children would stare at me with a complete lack of affection. My antics filled them only with a greater sense of their own quickly approaching mortality. And eventually I was banned from the hospital for political reasons. Those politics being the fact that I caused the death of seven children. In any case, I was lost, without a purpose. What was I to do? What was I meant for in this existence that we call a life? Eventually, the idea struck me to become a chronicler of our times after passing a bookstore and happening to purchase entirely on a whim the entirety of the Shakespeare folio. Oh, how I was inspired by the wide range of human emotion and experience depicted therein. I too, I decided, could be a similarly noble chronicler of the human comedy and the human tragedy. And so, I wrote, within the course of two months, my first novel, which was entitled, Can I please have an apple? 
it sold very poorly. The main character was a young street urchin named Gus Ganking. And Gus Ganking searched long and hard for an apple. And finally, at novel's end, he realizes he should probably ask for one and then receives it. Having described the plot for you, uh, I really don't think you need to experience it yourself. That really pretty much does it. You're not going to get any other insight into the human condition other than people want apples. Which is a truth that scarcely needs to be reinforced. In any case, the book sold poorly and was received rather shabbily by critics, who labeled it puerile, pointless, weirdly prejudiced against the elderly, and not prejudiced enough against the elderly. People were really divided on that point. In any case, having faced yet another crippling failure, I was forced to reevaluate my life's path. And so I turned, in my most truly desperate hour, to the lowest form of existence imaginable ventriloquism. My puppet was named Hank Bank, and he said some outrageous things that I simply could not believe he was saying. I pleaded with him to be nice to the nice people, but he wouldn't listen, and he instead continued saying outrageously irreverent and rude things to the audiences to which we performed. I tried to control him. Listener, please know that I did. And yet... He continued to point out to the overweight that they could lose a few pounds, or if someone was balding, whereas in polite society it would be wise to ignore such a reality, he would draw attention to it loudly and often including a comparison to a cue ball used in billiards which no one appreciated. Uh, so truly, I was at the very bottom of the pit of humanity. And then I wrote Hawk Finn. I don't remember how I wrote it, but I wrote it. I think it, I came up with the name. And then I thought, Huck Finn, what is a Huck Finn? I suppose he's a sort of uh, southern rascal. A young boy of about 12 or 13. And then everything else, uh, it just kind of happened. And uh, I wrote a lot of other things. And yet I think, despite my later triumphs, my early adversity is something that I will always try to forget. Good night, everybody. I'm going to leave the theater now. I've been Mark Twain. Get lost. <laughs>